So in this reading, years before the day of Pentecost, the prophet Joel reveals what will happen. We will look at this promise being fulfilled in our sermon today. So it's Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Well, let me pray for us uh, before we uh, hear God's word preached. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your spirit that uh, people will come to a new life built together uh, as a people. And uh, Lord, we praise you uh, that it is a multinational completely uh, international through transcending language, uh, race, and nation, community of new people uh, that are brought to new life in you. We ask that you would help us to see that more clearly this morning. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 1 through to verse 13. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Well, in businesses, uh, you sometimes hear, don't you, about them having mission statements. And there are some uh, pretty famous ones out there, aren't there? There's uh, uh, Tesla accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy. You heard that before? Or uh, Meta, giving people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. A couple of weeks ago, we heard, in a way, God's 
mission statement for his people, his community. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, The purpose is to give something to aim towards, evaluate their progress by. Well, how is God doing on his mission? Well, we witnessed here today already a new birth uh, symbolized in baptism, um, that uh, washing away of sins and being made new. That's a symbol of that. And uh, today we just heard read, really, the uh, birthday of the church. And that birthday of the church that we read in Acts chapter 2 is how God begins this mission through his people. And so Acts 1 verse 8, that uh, they would be witnesses to all the ends of the earth. It was given to the apostles by the Lord Jesus, and they were told to wait for the power of the Spirit before they get on with the job. Today in Acts 2, we get to see that power, that beginning. So to begin with, we see the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. You can see it in verses 1 to 4. It's the day of Pentecost, verse 1. They were in one place. The they here, I think, is referring to Jesus' apostles, his followers who he'd given uh, this special uh, job to of apostleship, sent, if you like. So rather than it being the 120 people that uh, Peter was speaking to in the previous chapter, I think uh, this is uh, the 12 here because they're all in one house in verse 2, and the crowds later refer to them as all being Galileans, verse 7. So the apostles are there. They've been told to wait. Wait for the power of the Spirit. And it's come to the Feast of Pentecost, sometimes called in the Old Testament the Feast of the Weeks. A bit of Bible background for us to help us get to grips uh, with what this is. The Feast of Weeks, or, or Pentecost, it was celebrated 50 days after Passover, Penty 50, 50 days after Passover. But we need to know what Passover is. Passover was when the people of God had been freed from slavery in Egypt. It was a night where the people of God were to kill a lamb and place its blood on their doorframe. And in doing so, they were protected from the plague of death, death that was to come that night, sweep through Egypt and release them from slavery. That, that Passover, death passed over those who had their households covered in the blood. And they were to remember that every year. And 50 days later, uh, they were to have a festival celebrating God's provision in harvest. So uh, it gets called the Feast of the Harvest in Exodus 23, 16, uh, 34, 22, and Deuteronomy 16, 16. That's the Bible background there. 50 days after Passover. Here we are. Now, the fact that this is happening 50 days after Jesus celebrated the Passover and then was killed, it tells us that he is the true Passover lamb. Uh, The sacrifice that saves his people from death. And so then it makes sense that 50 days after the true Passover, we come 
to the true Pentecost. And so verse 2, suddenly there is a sound that came from heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire entire house where they were sitting. Notice not not an actual wind, but, but a sound like a wind. It's not uncommon that God would have, in the Old Testament, used things like wind to, uh, to symbolize his presence. So Job 38 verse 1, God answers Job from a whirlwind. And then verse 3, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, tongues as of fire. So not strictly speaking fire, but looked like fire. Fire also used in the Old Testament to show God's presence. Think of the burning bush in Exodus 3, 1 to 5. So the wind, the fire, they're not random. They're signs. Signs that this is legit. This is God at work. This is the presence of God. And verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's focus just on the first half of verse 4 for a second before we move to talk about tongues. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The gift or baptism of the Spirit, we saw in in previous weeks, uh, is what is given to all believers, and God will never take that away. But we're seeing uh, that symbolized for the very first time. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out. It's a marker of a new age. Jesus has ascended and the Spirit has come. And for us, the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to each of us in order that we might believe. We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we have faith. And so at Pentecost, this is God moving in. A sign that says now believers have God with them, living in them. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Fullness of the Spirit means this gift needs to be continuously and increasingly enjoyed. God the Holy Spirit needs to be continually and increasingly enjoyed. So we might think of instructions in the New Testament like Ephesians 5, 18, where uh, we must be going on being filled with the Spirit. And this is seen in fruitfulness in relationships. So addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as we've done here this morning. A mark of spiritual fullness is meeting in worship, at singing and making melody to the Lord. Being filled with the Spirit means having that heartfelt worship, engaging in it, and always giving thanks, as Paul instructs in Ephesians 5, is uh, that if we're filled with the Spirit, we're to be led into thankfulness and submit to God and one another. And so if we want to be filled with the Spirit, we should want that as we're commanded to be. We need to be engaged in worship, uh, meeting together, building one another up, giving thanks to God and submitting to him 
in all things. But let me ask you this. Have you prayed that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit? Is this something that we are praying for others? It's something uh, that we did actually just pray for those being baptized, isn't it? If you look at that insert again, you'll see that we asked uh, for a daily increase in your Holy Spirit more and more. It's not uh, that they uh, had, uh, it's not that they, they uh, are lacking, but it's that they can have more. And so uh, it's clearly a goal of the gift of the Spirit that we grow more and more in spiritual fullness. Maybe uh, think of it like this. I am, uh, well, I, I am six foot four, and a newborn baby is a lot smaller than me. But we both have healthy working lungs if they have a healthy newborn baby. Now, if we were to both breathe in at the same time, you'd both say you're both full of air. Your lungs are filled. But I would probably have more air in my lungs. Now, praying for the fullness of the Holy Spirit is a bit like praying for increased spiritual lung capacity that we might be better equipped and encouraged uh, to meet together and grow in that enjoyment of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So a newborn believer has the gift of the Spirit, God with them, in them. But the difference between them and a more mature Christian is the spiritual lung capacity, the measure of their grasp of God's love for them and its purpose for them and the Holy Spirit. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Next we get the speaking of many languages. Look down with me at the page there, verses 5 and 6. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, The Feast of Pentecost, it means that uh, there were loads of extra people would have been in Jerusalem from uh, all over the Roman Empire. And they're bewildered because they're hearing their own language spoken. Now, that might be amazing enough. No way. Uh, This guy speaks my language. I thought I was the only one in Jerusalem. But look at what's even more amazing. And can you spot it in verse 7? They were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all of these speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? The extra astonishing thing is that these guys are called Galileans. Uh, They aren't renowned for their educational standards, uh, let alone their grasp on language. Even their own language was apparently a bit of a struggle for them. So Acts 4.13, Peter and John are called uneducated common men. And so the crowd hearing this are clearly amazed. I don't know if you've uh, ever seen the uh, guy who does videos on YouTube called Xiao Man. Um, He's an American uh, white Western guy uh, who is fluent in lots and lots of languages, but in particular has spent a lot of time in East Asia and China and has a lot of local Chinese dialects down. And so he'll go to Chinatown in New York City and he will speak that Fujianese or Cantonese, and he'll be, you know, tone perfect, and people will be amazed. They're amazed, not just because they're hearing their own language, but because it's from a white Western American guy. 
this is the amazement that these people are experiencing. But it's every language there. And so we get this tour of all these people from uh, verse 9. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. That means converts, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. Essentially, it's, it, it's a list of nations across the sweep of the known world, the Roman Empire. And Luke is saying they all hear their own language. What's happening here is the spiritual gift called tongues. The Holy Spirit has given them the ability to speak all these other languages. And so likewise, in Acts chapter 10, when believers from Gentile backgrounds are given the Holy Spirit, uh, speaking in tongues occurs. As it does when people who uh, weren't quite believers actually hear, respond to the gospel and receive the gift of the Spirit, speaking in tongues happens in Acts 19. Tongues in the book of Acts accompanies the baptism of the Spirit in these instances. But there are times where people come to faith and tongues is never mentioned. So uh, Acts 2.41, those who received uh, uh, Peter's word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people there. So you'll sometimes hear churches saying, uh, after you come to faith, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you'll suddenly speak in tongues and then you're living the next level spiritual life. I think it's making slightly too much of uh, what's going on in Acts, ignoring the times that where people come to faith, clearly receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, because they're baptized into one body by one spirit, but they don't receive that spiritual gift. And so there are also instances, uh, there are also some differences then uh, between tongues happening here in Acts and then what happens uh, later in 1 Corinthians when Paul teaches on tongues. So he provides further insights into the gift of tongues. Uh, The focus uh, in Corinth, though, uh, is that uh, the use of tongues within the community of believers is to uh, be encouraging, to build up, to edify. And it seems that there's some difference, therefore. Uh, In the Corinthian church, the speaking in tongues, it required a translation. And so it appears that uh, the tongues could, while in Acts they're a known language, uh, people are recognizing it, hearing it immediately, Uh, In Corinth, the gift of tongues required the gift of interpretation of tongues. Paul's instructions for this spiritual gift suggest that tongues were not intended for a sort of private personal prayer, but rather for public gatherings and should be accompanied by an interpretation. So 1 Corinthians 14.5 states, I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy." The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church might be edified, built up, encouraged. He emphasizes that encouragement and understanding of what is being spoken for the benefit of the church in 1413. He says, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. And it's suggested it should be accompanied with intelligible interpretation, so the message can be understood and encouraging. So a few questions that's worth thinking about today for us. Does the gift of tongues happen? Well, 
New Testament-wise, we don't see any reason uh, why it shouldn't. And there are churches out there that place a huge emphasis uh, on tongues happening. You'll notice, though, uh, that we don't, at the barge, place a great big emphasis on it. And that's simply because of the weight that Paul gives to what is intelligible, what's understandable, encouraging and building up. Some Christians also insist that everybody should be doing this. Sort of like tongues is where the spiritual action is. So I grew up going to uh, some Christian summer camps where it was a case of everyone needs to be doing this. Get in on the spiritual action. Uh, Pray, open your mouth and just hope that uh, God gives you the gift of tongues. But certainly if as much emphasis had been placed on the intelligible understanding of God's word, I think it probably would have been a more encouraging event. So this uh, at the church is what we call a secondary issue. It means it's not essential for agreement. So the nature of Jesus, his death and resurrection, that's a primary thing. To be a Christian, uh, to worship, you you need to be agreeing on that. Something like the baptism of infants or differing views on spiritual gifts, they are secondary. And so uh, if uh, your practice is speaking in tongues, then you're still very, very welcome here. And we love having you. You don't have to change your beliefs on what is secondary in order to come here. Just understand that we teach with a particular emphasis, and one of those emphasis is intelligibility, understandability. Because for Paul, that's where the excitement is. So that's the speaking of many languages. It's spoken to people from all nations, to many nations, verses 9 to 11. The list is likely a sort of Jewish diaspora, drawn from all over the Roman Empire. You go down the list, you can sort of see it moves geographically across the Mediterranean world, east to west almost. Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, verse 9. That's people from like the Caspian Sea uh, westwards, likely Jewish descendants from the exiles that happened in the 8th and 6th centuries. We get the five areas of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. That's Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Judea. Judea comes between them in this list, maybe referring to the whole region of Palestine and Syria. Sorry. Next group is part of Africa. Egypt, Libya belonging to Cyrene, its chief city. Rome, Jews, proselytes, converts. And then Cretans and Arabians. This was the international, multilingual crowd gathered in Jerusalem at the time. So why did the Spirit do this at Pentecost? It's a sign of that Acts 1.8. The witnesses going out to the ends of the earth. Many nations. It's a dramatic announcement of the beginning of the Acts 1.8 age. The significance of this is that well, it symbolizes a a new unity, the Holy Spirit transcending racial, national, linguistic barriers, the crowd from every nation. And do we realize that we're sat here today because of that event? Because we are in this age, the Holy Spirit has worked to bring us here together today. We're evidence of this mission working. And what a joy. That Pentecost is the ultimate proof that if you're a Christian, you don't have to 
look a certain way. You don't have to dress in a certain culture. You don't have to speak a certain way. You sometimes hear that uh, Christianity is a Western white religion. And it's not true historically, biblically. It does also show that those who've attempted to force Western culture on others in the name of Christianity, they're completely wrong. (laughs) We live in London. All nations are on our doorstep. And so it is a good thing to have all nations in our churches. The gospel officially came to the UK in the 500s. There have been a couple of Christians who'd arrived before then. But it's proof that we're part of the new age. It works. Uh, The gospel is still going out among the nations, even now. And in London, we don't have to make journeys into distant lands. But we have all nations on our doorstep. We can share the gospel with our neighbor, our friend at the school gates, our colleague. And in doing that, we're seeing Acts 1 verse 8 in action. Why? Should we be doing this? Well, it's so that the mighty works of God can be proclaimed. Verse 11b. So they do this, that the mighty works of God might be proclaimed. What are the mighty works of God? When we look at at Peter's sermon uh, from this day, uh, next time we're in Acts, uh, we'll see that. But if you actually just uh, scan across the page and go uh, with me to verse 22 to 24... You'll see a bit of Peter's explanation. So page 1097, Acts 2, uh, 22. This is Peter speaking, one of the apostles. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God, you crucified And killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. These are the mighty works of God. Ultimately, that Jesus Christ is God, taken on flesh, proved in the miracles he did, and that through the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our wrongdoing. It's completely forgiven. Our sin, completely forgiven. Gone to the cross in our place, the Lord Jesus, all that we can be saved. And so now, having peace with God, where once our rebellion cut us off from him. This is what Joanne, Rochen, and Derek each believe. And the offer extends to each one of us today. Even if this is your very first time hearing this today, if we turn to Christ, who was crucified for us, who rose again, if we turn to him because of his sinless record, he rose from the dead, it means that death could not hold him. His promises of new life, the washing away of sin, is for you today. So would you turn away from sin and be saved? Uh, Repent means turn away. Repent and believe in the mighty works of God, that Jesus did this for you. What's your reaction uh, to that today? We see two reactions from the people here 
listening and seeing the crowd. The reaction of the people, uh, 2, 12 to 13. The first is amazement, and uh, the second is mockery. So first, amazement. Verse 12, uh, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Peter explains uh, in a sermon uh, later in the chapter exactly what it means. It's simply that this is the new age. The spirit of God is now in believers. God is at work building his people, gathering them in, giving them new life, equipping them to love God and one another. Today, you might be amazed. You might be a little bit perplexed. It means confused. I want to say don't uh, let your confusion stop you exploring who Jesus really is and what he means for you. I've heard uh, before of people reading the Gospels, reading uh, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and hearing of how he saves us. And their reaction has been, I'm just a bit overwhelmed by it all. It seems almost too good to be true. Let me say today, don't let that amazement, don't let that confusion even stop us. It is true. Jesus' death truly does mean every sin of ours can be wiped totally clean, gone forever. It's yours if you will have it. But there's also mockery as a reaction in the passage. Verse 13, others mocking said they're filled with new wine. This is a really interesting one, isn't it? Clearly, some people thought that they were drunk. And Peter explains later that it was actually far too early to be drunk in the day, which is a great answer. But why did they think that they were drunk? And some people describe a, a particular experience, this particular experience, as uh, being drunk in the Spirit. Uh, so filled with the Holy Spirit, so filled with joy, that they appear to lose some self-control. I think it's perfectly possible that this crowd... Uh, might have seen these joy-filled apostles speaking in many languages, drawing a massive crowd, and assumed that they'd been on it pretty early. There's commentators, though, like uh, John Stott, who point out that a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so uh, he says it can't be possible for the apostles to have lost self-control in the way that uh, some who say they're drunk in the Spirit do. I think it's possible that to the crowd, it may well have looked that way. And so uh, they, if you like, are cynics. If that is you today, and uh, you look at what's gone on here in these baptisms, and uh, you've heard what I've said, and uh, you're cynical about it, let me encourage you. Uh, don't let that stop you exploring. We'd love to help you uh, to uh, understand a bit more where we're coming from. And we'd love to hear your skepticisms and your questions as well. Uh, if that's you today, why not fill in one of these what next cards that were in the service sheets? Uh, you can do a QR code or uh, just leave it in the box if you've got a pen. Um, that way we'll be able to get in touch and we'll be able to invite you to maybe to a Christianity Explored course that's going to be starting in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, that's a place where you can bring these questions and skepticisms accusations that we're all mad, whatever it is you want to bring. We'd love to have you there. So this is Pentecost. Uh, This is uh, the beginning of God's mission. His mission statement in Acts 1, uh, that the gospel would go out from Jerusalem, Judea, uh, to all the ends of the earth. This is the birth 
of the new age, marked by the coming of the Holy Spirit, who lives in believers, uh, fills his believers, uh, who transcends uh, all races, nations, and languages to create the multinational community of the people of God. Uh, This is the age that we're in. This is the gospel that we have. We're going to continue our service in prayer, but why not take just a moment, reflect on what you've heard.